Well, I'd like to start by welcoming those who, uh, this is their first time with our studies here, and we're grateful for your presence here. Certainly welcoming those who've been here the whole time as well. Uh, I believe they've been encouraging. I've been encouraged as we've been studying together, been encouraged by your comments and your, and your questions even as we look a little deeper at some of these things. We are noticing in Genesis 1 through 4 some specific things. The first chapter we really uh, saw God and learned about his nature by examining the creation and not just the fact of creation, but the way he tells us he made it. So he's revealing his motives and himself in the revelation of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, we take a closer look at the sixth day of creation and we learn how he made us and how he made man and woman and even marriage. We begin to learn a lot about the nature of man and that. And we're now working on chapter 3. We've been through the first 13 verses looking at the nature of sin. And what we began to see last time is the perhaps the saddest chapter in the Bible is the temptation that comes along and Adam and Eve give in full bore to the temptation that the serpent brings to them. And they give in really to their own, uh, the temptation of doing things their way instead of the way that God has, uh, has given them to do things. They mistrust God based on this question, has God indeed said? And then they fill in the blank with whatever the question may be. In this case, has he indeed said not to eat of every tree of the garden? They begin to doubt God's goodness, and they end up giving into their own reasoning instead of his reasoning, and they fall, and we recognize uh, how that happened. Uh, in the first uh, few verses after that moment of, of discovery and, and experience of things, God did not want them to, to suffer the experience of, God comes to Adam and asks, where are you? And I believe that's a question we ought to be asking ourselves every time as we're reading the Bible. And we hear God asking us that, where are you? Here is my standard. Where are you? Based on that. And we ought to be willing to humble ourselves and come forward and confess that we're not there yet, but our desire is to get there. Well, we saw this confession from Adam and Eve, and we talked about that a real confession begins with, I, I messed up, I sinned, I did wrong. And both of their confessions uh, ended with I. Because of all of these things in this situation, really a justification, a passing of blame, they ended with, and so then I ate. And so we're going to see today the consequences of that not real repentance, and the consequences of sin, as we begin looking at verses 14 and following, and the first consequence is going to fall on the serpent himself. I'd like someone to do the reading for us, verses 14 and 15 in Genesis chapter 3, who thanked that for Thank you. Thank you, John. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. All right, so God says to the serpent here in verse 14, first he asked Adam, where are you and what have you done? And then he turns to the woman when Adam passed the blame, really blaming God, but said, it's the woman you gave to be with me. He turns to the woman and says, what have you done? But you notice he doesn't say to the serpent, what have you done? He just says, because you've done this, excuse me, because you've done this, and he begins to hand down the sentence. So we begin to see a distinction here. God allowed man and woman to answer for their actions. They didn't answer well, but he allowed them to answer. But he goes straight to the serpent's punishment and allows no defense. And so the book of Genesis really, in the end, emphasizes a difference between man and the rest of creation. God has given a special place of honor to human beings, and he allows us an opportunity for repentance and for forgiveness in a way that we don't see any of the rest of creation afforded this opportunity. Even the angels, we don't see true uh, emphasis on the fact that they may be able to repent. I don't see that in the Bible, at least. But I do see that with man. And so, he says to the serpent, you are cursed more than all cattle. More than all the land beasts is really the, the word here. So God curses one of his creatures because it used its capacity to lead others into evil. It's a sad moment. God made this creature to be good, and yet here he's had to curse his own creature. And this curse has really three aspects to it. The first one is that you will crawl on your belly. Um, imagine what this serpent must have been before this moment of the cursing. The serpent could speak. That's an amazing thing to think about, a, a speaking serpent. A serpent we think of today certainly doesn't speak. And either flew or walked, because now the curse is you will go on your belly. And it's really taking this self-exalting creature, if you will, and forcing it into a posture of humiliation. One who bows before everything else in existence at this point has been put to the lowest possible spot. And a 
physical sense to kind of demonstrate to others the lowly state of this animal, of this creature. And a second aspect is that you will eat dust all the days of your life. You remember that word dust, that's what God made man out of. That's really where the animals came up out of the earth as well. It's the most base thing. I believe it's tied to this idea of flesh and, and these carnal things, these earthly things. And so this there's a cursing here in that what was given to serpent and to all things to eat was the green herb. This is no more the green herb, the life-giving herb. This is death. This is carrion. This is the stuff that's, that's left out there, the outcast. And there's a second thing that's tied to that. All the days of your life means that there's now a counting of days. Your days will come to an end. That must not have been the case before, but now that's been handed down. And whatever uh, all the details of that are, God doesn't give us, but there is a counting of days now. And finally, and I believe most importantly, certainly for, for our focus, is that God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God does this. This is not an aversion on the part of the woman. This is God separating them in some way. And it's enmity really not just with her, but with her seed. And this is going to be an important word that gets carried through here. So this is way more than just some fear of snakes. You know, not only women fear snakes, a lot of men do too. I kind of like them. I don't want to get bitten by a poisonous one or a venomous one. But I, I kind of think snakes are cool. And we may not even talk about snakes at all. We're using this word serpent over and over again. We're not even sure what that really is depicting. And we've been saying this is Satan. We know that clearly from uh, Revelation 12, that we're dealing with Satan and his influence, really. But this is way more than that. What this really is, is God stating the end from the beginning. And I love this, because we see this kind of pattern in the Bible. When things look like they are the gloomiest they can be, God always shines a ray of hope. He always extends an opportunity, even at the worst possible time. And so we've just seen the worst possible moment in, in human history, when man has hidden himself from God, he's run from God, but God says... Let me extend to you some hope. And so this enmity with the serpent will bring to the serpent the aversion of the woman and really her seed. There was a friendship in some sort. Eve was willing to listen to the serpent and give him an ear and decide maybe he's got something going on. But this aversion now, this enmity, will make that much more difficult. It'll, it'll have to work a lot harder, be more clever to get her attention. And really, there's this war that's going to last for generations. And God already tells us how that's going to end. The serpent will be squashed under the heel of the woman's descendant, even though uh, he will wound him, but the descendant will, will end up deceived, will end up squashing the serpent's head and its power and authority. Obviously, if you've read any more in the Bible, you recognize this is the first messianic prophecy. This is the Christ who will come only of a woman. I never thought about the importance of the way this is worded here until after reading other prophecies about Jesus. When you think about like Isaiah, where the virgin shall give birth to a child, literally even, he only came through a woman. And so God has prepared this plan since before the beginning of the world, and he revealed it piecemeal until finally at the fullness of time the Christ came and fulfilled prophecies in a way that, that could not even be imagined before. So all those verses, that are, that we're not going to read all of those, they all talk about this plan being, being uh, made by God before the world came into existence. This is not news to God, what's going on here. He's just now revealing the first bit of that information to us. And so that's how he knows what's going to happen. This has all been planned out. So he talks to the, the serpent first and lays down this sentence and that threefold sentence we just saw. Now in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So he turns to the woman now. He's already asked her, and she's given her sort of confession, but now he turns to her with the consequences of her action. So he decrees her sentence, if you will, and her sentence has two aspects that are specific to it. First is pain tied to the reproductive process, and I use that, that generic kind of uh, description on purpose. This is not just childbirth, but it's the whole process that's involved in the reproduction uh, and the, and the uh, the procreation of life, and on the woman's part at least. So there is a descendant that's to come. But this promise of a descendant coming through her is now going to require a painful sacrifice from her. I don't know what childbirth must have been like before, but in the perfection of the garden, there was no aspect of death tied to it. Uh, we know that at least until fairly recently, there was kind of a fear that the mother might die in childbirth. And there still is occasionally 
But it used to be a pretty fearful thing. But now with te- modern technology, we can, we can overcome most of those problems. But there is a sacrifice on the part of the woman in, in giving birth to this seed that's going to be able to stomp out the head of the, the serpent. Of course, the sacrifice is greater for God. And he'll hint through, the, uh, through Genesis 22 and other places of this coming of the giving of the son, which is going to be a sacrifice on his behalf as well. The second aspect of this is submission to her husband's rule. And so we remember that she was created as his helper. We talked a bit about those roles yesterday and how important that is to understand and and embrace the roles that God has given us. Since order has been messed up with sin, to restore order, she is going to need to embrace her role. It's not that God is now saying, because you did this, you're condemned to suffer under his hand. That is not the point at all. He's reminding her of what her role is supposed to be. And so she's going to have to accept and fulfill her role properly. Now, it's interesting, in 1 Timothy 2, we looked at one of the verses yesterday. It seems that, in that case at least, the the roles that God is distinctly uh, giving to women and men, and the role that he puts man in the leadership and the government role, may have to do more with the man's weakness than the woman's. How easily men are swayed by women. Uh, it's kind of the yes dear moment where the man just goes and does it because he wants to please his wife. Well, there's going to be times when he's going to have to say, I'm not going to please you, but I am going to do what's right. <laughs> and in the end, if you're seeking to do God's will, we'll both be pleased as we do his will. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, unfortunately, has, has stopped serving the Lord, had to deal with this early on in his marriage. His wife was converted during the time they were dating. And during their marriage early on, she saw his dedication to the Lord, and she was kind of afraid of it, kind of jealous of it. And one day she said, going back to my parents' house, you can either serve me or serve God, but if you choose to serve God, then I'm going back to my parents' house. And he said, well, I'm going to serve God for your, for your good. And she left him. And he was alone for a while and couldn't resist and ended up falling into sin and then left the Lord completely. But we see how when men and women embrace their roles, it makes a blessing out of marriage. When we do not, and we don't embrace the Lord, the marriage is going to suffer. And then society will suffer. So God is reminding her of her role, and that will help bring restore order back after this disorder from their sin. It won't be perfect, but it will try to restore the order. That's what God intended. Somebody read for us, though, now 17 through 19. As we look as God turns now his attention to Adam, and he's going to hand his sentencing down. Thank you, Jerome. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So, he turns to Adam, and he, and he speaks now this sentence. And he's already dealt with the serpent and with the woman, now he deals with Adam. And he says, you listen to your wife. He doesn't stop there, though. It's important that we understand he didn't stop there. He said, you listen to your wife when I had already given you instruction. That's the issue. We should be listening to our wives. (laughs) Gentlemen, if they are seeking to do God's will, they were given to us as a help in our service to God. And if they're encouraging us to the service of God, we should listen to them. And we should be encouraged that they're encouraging us to serve the Lord. But our wives or anybody else that encourages us to serve the Lord in a way that's not pleasing to him or not to serve the Lord, we need to reject that. And that's what Adam didn't do here. It's also what Abram didn't do later when Sarah offered an alternative to God's plan. And God came to Abram and said, you heeded the voice of your wife, Sarah, when I'd already given you a plan. We need to be careful about whose voice we're hearing and in what context we're hearing it. But God has given us our wives as a help, and we ought to listen when, we, when, we, when they're helping us. But he turns to Adam and says, you listen to someone else instead of me. And because of that, cursed is the ground for your sake. The earth itself is cursed. This is the soil. It's the word that was used for the ground he was taken out of. But the end consequence of this is a cursing on all of the earth. Remember that cracked lens view we talked about a couple of days ago? This is what caused that. God fractured the earth with this curse. On purpose, 
Romans chapter 8, I mentioned, has a lot of tie-ins to Genesis. And in Romans chapter 8, the language we'll see in just a moment is very tied to that. And it says that God subjected the earth to futility in hope. If there was no pain and no suffering and, and no longing for something better here, we might decide we just want to stay here. But God has desired and designed that through pain and suffering and death, we would look for something beyond. In fact, that's one of the questions that comes fairly early when children begin to realize, my parents are going to die. Then they begin to realize, I'm going to die. Then they begin to ask, why are we even here then? Why are we here? I didn't ask to be born, and now you're telling me I'm going to have to die someday? Why am I here? Great question. Let's talk about that. (laughs) And that's what God did. He subjected the world to futility and hope. And in a moment, I'll show you some more of the language in Romans 8 that's really awesome. But here's an issue that comes up sometimes. Is it that we're guilty of Adam's sin? Is that why we suffer? Or is it a consequence of Adam's sin? And a lot of uh, religions will teach that we're born into the guilt of Adam's sin. And is that what this teaches here? Is there a so-called original sin because of Adam? I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches at all. I think that Genesis 3 helps us even to understand that. There's just some simple things we can see here. There's much more as we go further through the Bible. But when you think about Are we all guilty in Adam? Well, here, the punishment was individual, wasn't it? He began with the serpent and handed down punishment. Then he goes to the woman and hands down punishment. Then he turns to the man and hands down punishment. We understand that really the judgment for sin is individual. I think even people who would say we're born in original sin understand that the judgment is individual. But think about the order here. If all are guilty because Adam sinned, then why are the serpent and the woman punished? They sinned before Adam did. Both of them. If they're only guilty of Adam's sin, then why are they punished at all? Well, they're guilty of their own sin. There's an example of that really clearly, I believe, here in Genesis 3. The problem here is that God has pronounced this curse on the earth, and that brings consequences to all creation. We all are suffering the consequences of Adam's sin, not the guilt. Guilt for sin is only imputed to the one who actually sins. Ezekiel 18 is the clearest chapter to see that, but the fathers don't bear the guilt of the children, nor the children the guilt of the fathers. We bear the guilt of the sin that we ourselves have participated in. The problem is, in Romans 3, verse 23, all eventually end up participating in the sin of Adam. We all end up being like that earthly father, instead of like the spiritual one, and then we have to be transformed back by becoming Christ-like, and by uh, uh, giving ourselves to him. So the idea here is a, a rather guilt or consequence. Sometimes I'll try to uh, exemplify this in this way, and I, and I hope this will help you see it clearly. Let's imagine my family and I decide to take a walk one evening, and we're going down the side of the road. There's not much of a sidewalk, so we're kind of just on the side of the road walking, and there's a person who's been at the bar drinking all day long, and he decides to get in his car and drive drunk, and he comes around a corner and runs over half of my family. Now, who suffers the consequence of his action? Well, my family does. Many of us. Some of us may even die. Maybe he'll suffer consequence from his actions too by running over something else that injures him. But who suffers the guilt? None of my family is going to be put in jail for that. We're not going to suffer the guilt of his sin. He's the one who sins. He'll suffer the guilt. And so we can see how sin has two aspects to it. There's a guilty aspect to the one who sins, but the consequences of sin will extend to other people often, and almost always do. And sometimes we don't see that. And sometimes we get kind of flippant about sin. Well, let them sin on their own. They'll just go sin over there where they are. That sin affects us all. Sin always inverts the order of God's plan. It's something we didn't talk about in the last lesson, but I think this is a good point for us to look at this. Sin always inverts the order. So you'll remember that God, as creator, is sovereign. This is the order that God created. He's sovereign. He has made man to govern over all of creation, over all the animals, and he gave woman as the helper. So if you look kind of at a chart of the order, you've got God, man, woman as a helper that's slightly under his rule, and then all the rest of creation. When you think about what happened with sin, you have serpent, a creature, who gives a new order. You have woman, who's supposed to be man's helper, who falls for that order and then convinces her husband. So he's under her in the sense that he obeyed her voice rather than God. And then you have all of them blaming God and exalting the creature above themselves or the other creature above that. So it's a complete inversion. I want to suggest to you that every time we sin, that's what we end up doing. We put the creature above the creator. Romans 1 says we do that when we reject the knowledge of God and we reject the worship of God. We begin worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Oftentimes that creature we're worshiping is ourselves. Self-love, self-imposed religion, things that feel good to me. And so we need to understand that that's what's happened. And God is trying then to 
reinvert the order. He's trying to put himself back where he belongs, and we need to be able to do that. It's not that he's trying. He is doing that. We need to, to submit ourselves to that. So the ground is cursed. And he says then, in toil you shall eat of it. And what's interesting about that is, uh, let's see, in verse uh, 17, if you go back to verse 16, does anybody have a different translation? In pain you shall bring forth children. There in verse 16, there's another word in some ears. Some of the versions have the word multiply your pain. Yeah, but the word pain is the one I'm looking at, and so that's the same word. So some words will have anguish is an interesting word. Yeah, some translations have, there's another one that has the word toil. This is the same Hebrew word here. And the point of that is, the same phrase translated for the woman in 3.16 as in pain you will bring forth children is translated here, in pain or in labor pains or in toil you will bring forth fruit. The punishment is the same, but it's tied individually to the roles they perform. Isn't that interesting? That God punishes them according to their roles with the same punishment. So as the woman had this process of pain in childbearing and in the, the, the fruit of her, of her womb, the man has this same toil and pain in the process of bringing forth the fruit that will feed the fruit of the womb. Uh, that's a strange phrase to say, but that's the best way I can think of to say that. If you look at Romans 8 again, though, you'll see that the whole creation groans together with birth pangs until now, waiting for the revealing and the adoption of the sons of God. It's this idea, this subjection to futility that all of us are groaning under. We're all laboring and toiling. Whether man or woman, this punishment has been the same, and really all creation is, is groaning together with us. So, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Well, God told them, if they eat of this tree, they would die. And so now he's telling them there's a counting of their days. And we'll talk about this in just a minute. This is something that trips people up a lot. Did they die the day they ate of that tree? That's what God said they would do. God has told Adam here, your days are being counted. They're being numbered now, just like he told the serpent. There's the same consequence that's going to come on the serpent and all those who've acted like him. And he says, both thorns and thistles it'll bring forth. And this is one of the ways the curse would manifest itself. These, this thorny growth where there was only green herbs, fruited plants and trees, all of a sudden there's this thorny growth that's going to come up. And we've ever had to deal with thorns, and it's no fun. But this is an image that becomes a root image through the rest of the Bible. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. This symbol of God's curse becomes a reminder of the sadness of sin all through the Bible. Start, now that I've said that, you're starting to think about it, aren't you? You remember thorns now all of a sudden. Genesis 3.18, the earth produces thorns, making man's toil difficult. Here are just two examples from the prophets, and you'll start seeing them everywhere once you get back to the prophets after seeing this now. I hope you will, at least. Isaiah 34, 13, thorns shall come up in their palaces, nettles and brambles in their fortresses. He's talking about sin coming into the people, and he's having to cast the people out, and what's going to remain in Israel and in these other nations will be just thorns, a reminder of their sin. Hosea 9, 6, nettles shall possess their valuables of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. Sin has gotten in. And these thorns are the example. That's the image that he brings in. If you understand that from Genesis, it makes a lot of sense when you see that all of a sudden. Uh, a brother of ours used to talk about uh, when the cities are possessed by thorns and brambles and by ostriches and jackals. You see those in the, in the Proverbs. I mean, you see those in the prophets a lot. It means it's bad news for the people. <laughs> They've been expelled by the wild beasts and by the thorns that represent sin. And God uses that language a lot when he's condemning a nation, often Israel themselves. And of course, probably the most famous one for us, the Apostle Paul. Wasn't that a thorn in his flesh that he talks about? He says it was a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Maybe a residual from his own sins, but something that, if we will allow it to, will humble us and remind us that God's grace is greater than our sin. And that's the way Paul used it. He didn't want to be exalted above measure. But I hope you're thinking of another example. Because there's one image of thorns that is more compelling and more moving than all the others. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's pain that someone is carrying for us, according to Isaiah. 1 Peter 2, Himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, whose stripes you were healed. Talking about Jesus. They clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Now, when you think about that for a second, who put that crown of thorns on his head? You might be asking the question, where are you? Because you put it there. I put it there. 
Hebrews says that, that we're the ones who put him on the cross, and we put that crown of thorns, those sins, literally on his head. And that symbol for sin, the Jews would know that. And so you can understand, they're saying, yeah, here's your great Savior, he's the Savior, he's the sinner. He eats with sinners and publicans, and what kind of man is this? Who put that crown of thorns on his head? Do you remember? Roman soldiers took him into the praetorium and put that crown of thorns on his head in a purple robe and began to blaspheme and kneel down before him. They had no idea about that symbol. No idea. Some friend of God writing the Bible. That he used people who were ignorant of what they were doing to fulfill one of the greatest images of sin there was as the one who carried his sins on his own head was sent to the cross by them with a crown of thorns. Isn't that a beautiful, that that weaving of this idea that there's no way men wrote this is <laughs> one of the things that, that helped prove to me and bolster my faith when I was trying to say men wrote the Bible. How did they get that in there? <laughs> that didn't happen by a random chance. That is the designer writing that message all the way through. Isn't that a beautiful? So these stem, these thistles and thorns are theirs. And then he says something that, at least in, when I thought about this in, in Brazil, was really kind of gross. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In Brazil you go to the bread store every day, and the guy works and kneads the bread and puts it out. And instead of putting water into the, to the dough to make it stick together, can you imagine if that was just his sweat? That's really the idea. You're working yourself to death. Do we ever say that? So you can afford to feed yourself. That's the idea here. It's hard labor. It used to be tending and keeping. Just kind of maintain the garden. Now it's hard work. You're going to have to till, weed, plant, tend, cultivate, harvest. Have you ever worked the fields? That's hard work. And it's got to be done now because you weren't satisfied with the way that God had it set up and things will always be more difficult if you're not satisfied with God. You'll have to do that until you return to the ground. He comes back to this second aspect of talking about their death. Dust you are. To dust you shall return. Very harsh. This is a loving God. This doesn't sound like the New Testament God. That's what people say. The Old Testament God was harsh and unloving. The New Testament God's full of grace. Same God. <laughs> Same God. There's a reason he says these things. It's part of the curse that he already lovingly warned them about from the beginning. Just stay away from that tree. You eat from it, you're going to die. But God's not a liar. And so when he promises something, we like to think when he promises heaven, everybody's going to heaven. But he also promises not everybody's going to heaven. In fact, most people won't. They'll go to hell. And that is not something we like to think about, but God keeps his promises, and here he's keeping his promise. So, God had indeed said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yet they're standing here alive to receive their sentencing. So, did God lie? As an atheist, boy, I thought I had him. I was like, here you go. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. If they didn't die in that day, then God is a liar. And the serpent can say, told you you wouldn't die. <laughs> and the serpent can claim victory. Is he going to claim victory over God? Did they die or not? Well, let's have a look at that. James 2.26. A body without the spirit is dead. And so faith without works is dead also. There's kind of spiritual mathematics, if you will. Death describes a separation. When you try to define death, how would you define death? Well, it's a separation of life from the body. And in this case, he says... Very clearly, the body without the spirit, without that life-giving breath, is dead. And then he compares that to faith without works, also being dead. There's a subtraction there. Once the thing is subtracted, that's not life anymore. Not living faith, not a living body. In the same way, spiritual death is described as a separation from God. And I believe this is what God was getting at. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have separated you from your God. This is a, clearly an Old Testament uh, uh, concept, and this is not the only place, this is the one we most readily re recognize, Isaiah 59 2. Uh, and so there's been a separation from God because of sin. Ephesians 2 5, this is a clear one in the New Testament. You were dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive again in Christ. And you tell the Ephesians they were dead. But Paul's not the only one who spoke that way. And so I want us to see this, and then we'll go see what Jesus said about being dead. Uh, the man and woman did die in the day they ate from that tree. Because they're separated from God. They disobey him. They hide from him. They're afraid of him. They blame him. Does that sound like someone who's alive spiritually? <laughs> Not at all. Now, maybe we're splitting hairs to say they did die, but they died spiritually. But God understands what death is. 
And he understands that the only thing worse than physical death is separation from him. And so he describes what they did by going to that tree as being separated from him. The only word that will really convey that is death. And that's the word Jesus uses also. He came to give life. He came to restore the relationship between this fallen, dying man and God. John 3.16, if you believe in him, you'll live. How can you believe in him if you're dead? <laughs> well, you're alive to believe in him, then to live in truth. But John 5.24-29 is perhaps the clearest statement of this. And I love the way Jesus just matter-of-factly says these things. John chapter 5, verses 24-29. through 29. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So he speaks of two types of death here. And the first one, he says, some of you standing right here are dead. So if you listen to me, you'll come back to life. Eventually, those who are back in the tombs, they're going to come out and come back to life too, and then they'll be judged on what they did. But you've got an opportunity, you dead people. If you listen to me, you'll come back to life. Adam and Eve are given an opportunity, not for physical life, but for spiritual life. And we'll see how God gives that opportunity to them. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> if you want to come to the Father, come through me, and then you'll have life. You won't be dead anymore. So this is a very real biblical concept, and I believe that's what God has in mind when he tells them they're going to die. They won't understand that until it happens, but they'll understand it now, and we'll understand it as we read it. So in verses 20 through 24, Jonathan, I think you had your hand up earlier to read. Would you like to finish this text for us? Man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God was and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, Adam calls his wife's name Eve. He already called her Isha. This is me, but female. But he gives her another name, and this name is very significant. He's showing that they accepted their sentence. We will continue to produce children, even in pain, even in toil, even if we've got to make extra food because there's an extra mouth now. Whatever it takes, God, we will do what you said to do. And so there's this new hope that someday they will bring about the seed. And I really believe this is what Paul was talking to Timothy about in 1 Timothy 2.15, that she will be saved through childbearing and hope if she continues in faith. That's the idea here. It's not that women have to bear children, but this process of accepting the role both in the Old Testament and in the New, is what leads to salvation. These roles that God has given us, and they will bring about salvation not only to ourselves, but as we reach out to others. So the Bible declares here that Eve is the mother of all living. That's where she got this name. So there's this Jewish myth that's gone around, and some others picked up on it, of this first wife of Adam that was named Lilith, and that there was, you know, there's a different kind of life in the paradise, and so Adam and Eve came along later, and she gave the, the children that caused the problem. But there's this other woman named Lilith. There's no biblical evidence whatsoever for that. And there's also not this idea that Adam and Eve were the progenitors of one race, while there were lots of other racial progenitors that gave off the other races. That is not a biblical idea either. In fact, Acts says we're all one blood. <laughs> there's only one race, the human race. There are other cultures. There are other diversities that happen. But we're one race, and we ought to understand and embrace that idea. That would unify us more than anything else. There are not other first couples for other races. There is Adam and Eve. So all of the first people, and one of the questions that comes up, we're not going to get there in our study together, but you get out to verse 16 and 17, and Cain finds a wife, and where did she come from? One of Eve's daughters. 
or granddaughters or something. I mean, they're living a long, long time at this point, but they're all family still. Things were a little different. The sanctioning or the prohibition against marrying family comes along in the law of Moses. There was no prohibition before that. Uh, there's some interesting study on that. We won't get into that today, but just remember that prohibition comes later. And then God has an issue to deal with. These people are naked. <laughs> they knew they were naked. They hid because they were naked. They put on loincloths and it still wasn't enough, so they jumped behind the trees. That's still not enough because God looks at them even clothed with the tree and says they're naked. So God makes them tunics of skin. And I believe that word skin is actually in the plural. It doesn't make sense to say tunics of skins necessarily, so it doesn't translate that way. But the idea is for each one of them, he made a tunic of skin. And so what we end up seeing here is this clothing that God has made. He's dealt with the problem in providing clothing of skins, which means that something had to die. Some innocent animal died because of their sin were covered by uh, by their, their skins, in fact. And this is really the first foreshadowing of God's plan for redemption. We see that later on. It's not at all shocking to us in John 1, 29, when John says, look, there's a lamb. And he's the one that's going to take away the sins of the world, and he's pointing to a man. You know, if someone said, look at that donkey over there, we might take offense at that. But when he said, there's a lamb, everybody knew exactly what he meant. Because this plan had been spelled out through the Old Testament. Leviticus 17, verse 11, God says, I gave you blood on the altar to atone for your sins. So the death would take the place of life. The death of the, inno of the innocent would pay for the life of the guilty. So that plan really begins here, as these individual animals had to die to cover the body and the, and the sin, even, of Adam and Eve. So it's interesting to think about this concept of God clothing the man and woman here. They had, they had made enough to cover their intimate parts. And here's a married couple. The only two people right now on earth. And God still thinks it's not appropriate for them to be nude all of the time. <laughs> so he covers their bodies. And he makes this covering, this tunics. This word means something that hangs from the shoulder or side and covers down to the thighs. And later he'll define nudity more explicitly even as he goes through the Old Testament. We'll look at some of that in a little bit. But what we need to understand is in a world that's got the cracked lens where sin is in the world and we see things in a, in a cracked way, we have to let God determine what is sinful. And we have to let him cover the body in a holy way. So it's interesting to think about how God considers being clothed. And we'll just look at a few of these. But he clothes the priests for their service. In Exodus 28, he talks about the clothing. He makes these robes that will cover their, their whole bodies. But he says there's something else they need. These undergarments, these long underwear that will cover down to the knee, from the waist down to the knee, they must wear those under these robes in case, for some reason, they lift up a leg and show any skin under there. And that would be, they'd be sinning in doing that. God considers that to be something that a priest, in his service at least, would not be showing. And so he clothed the priest for their service. I want to submit to you that the New Testament says we're priests in God's service. <laughs> We're not physical priests anymore. We're spiritual priests. But we ought to consider what our physical bodies do to others who may be observing our service. We really need to take this to heart because in our society, it's celebrated to show the body. God says it's sinful to show the body. Job talked about being clothed with righteousness. Obviously, a, a completely spiritual application, but I think we can see that. That's the, the what uh, Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 2. This idea of the clothing revealing the heart of righteousness. That's what happens. If we're clothed with righteousness, then our outward clothing will also demonstrate that. And our aspect in other ways, what people will see first is that we desire righteousness whether than, than being fashionably sensitive or whatever else we may say. Uh, God in Ezekiel talks about clothing Israel with his glory. He didn't want Israel to be naked and ashamed, and so he clothed Israel with his glory. Christians are clothed in Christ. That is a concept that's repeated all over the New Testament. All these are will be available on the slides. I'm not going to go into the details here. But I want us just to consider, God is serious about clothing his people. In the book of Revelation, the saints are clothed with these white robes that are their righteous acts. Again, it's clothing in righteousness. And so God is very serious about that. And we need to take that seriously as well. Sometimes we don't take it as seriously as we ought to. So God says now, verse 22, the man has become like one of us. Remember, man was made like in God's image. So the serpent was right. They would become like God in this sense. They became like God in knowing, or at least being able to distinctly identify now good and evil, but that is not what God wanted them to be. He did not want them to know evil. In 
And so he'd already made them in his own image. And with sin, they're no longer truly like him, not in the ways he intended, at least. And so with all this new knowledge, they ironically are less like God. And we talked about this some yesterday. A lot of people still need to learn and understand being truly like God is much more than just knowing the right information. The Corinthians were puffed up because they knew so much. And Paul says, love edifies. <laughs> knowledge puffs up. So it's not just the knowledge. It's the application in a godly way of the knowledge. It's speaking the truth in love, he says in Ephesians 4, 15. That's what we need to learn to do. So there's an issue again. God's the one who resolves issues. He's been doing it already since chapter 1 many, many times. Here's this man who now understands what evil is, in some sense, is now tempted to give in to evil, and he may be able to take hold of that tree of life and eat and live forever, and we can't have that. A wanton sinner who can never die would eventually become a devil. I like to just imagine, no, I don't like to imagine, but imagine if Hitler could not be killed. If he hadn't taken his own life and no one else could, what would he be up to now? Where would he be by this point? It's very likely we would not be in this room. This was a man who was bent on evil, and it's a good thing he was put down. Good thing that was a possibility. So often it is the fear of death that motivates people against doing things that are wrong. Proverbs 5, 22 and 23, His own iniquities entrap the wicked man. He shall die for lack of instruction. God had a plan for that as well. Evil people often die early because their own acts end up entrapping them. It's not always the case. It's a proverb. It's not uh, always... True, but it's generically true, and certainly is a uh, something that deters people from doing things that are wrong. Um, so God sends him out of the Garden of Eden, verses 23 and 24. He loses the privilege of maintaining Eden. He now has to till, my version says, the ground. Some of your version says work, but this is the word for really working. It's not the one, the work of tending and keeping. This is working the garden. He's got a lot of hard work to do. But look at this, verse 24. He places cherubim. This is our first uh, look at angels. They were created beings. They were created already in the, the first verses of chapter 2. We saw that the host of heaven was made. So he's now placed these cherubim down to guard the tree of life. Around Valentine's Day, we probably saw cherub there were this little sweet little uh, naked baby angels with their little uh, bow and arrow. And it's called cherubs. Cherubim is the plural of the... That doesn't exist. <laughs> Anytime an angel appears in the Bible, the first thing almost always is, don't be afraid. The people are like, ah! they are frightening creatures. And Isaiah saw them and said, I'm undone. I'm in the presence of the holy angels, and I'm an unholy person. I've seen the holiness of God. I'm just undone. These cherubim are frightening. And not only are they there, there's this sword of fire that goes every direction at their command or whatever. This is a frightening scene here. This is the paradise they were in. They've been cast out of, and there's this blocking now. What would you have done? You want to keep them away from the tree of life. <laughs> you know, I asked this question a few times during this. Say, what would you have done? And my wife always loves to say, I'm so glad you're not God. And I agree with her, because I just would always do the wrong thing. I'd have chopped that thing down and burnt it up, and it'd be gone. And why did God not do that? <laughs> Wouldn't that be the most effective thing to do? Why do you just destroy that thing? What he did is, he put cherubim there in a flaming sword to block or to guard the way to the tree of life. So what did he do? He extended hope to them. <laughs> if there's a way to the tree of life, right now it's just blocked, but there's a way, there's still a way. You take away hope, you take away any desire to continue doing anything that's good. Who are the most dangerous inmates? They're on death row. They got no hope. They might get a last-minute pardon, but it's not likely. They may get some kind of an appeal, but the ones who've already appealed and lost the appeal, they're the most dangerous ones of all. What's going to keep them from murdering the guards? They're going to die anyway. No hope. And a lot of people live in places in the world where they see no hope. And so they become hardened and criminal in their thinking because they have no hope. But God extended hope to the man and his wife here. Didn't destroy the tree, but only blocked the way for a while. And we find the tree of life again. Some of us are talking about that. In the garden, in the paradise of God, to which we have access by means of Jesus Christ. The seed that was promised. In the New Testament, we see this tree again. In the book of Revelation, there's the tree of life. And there's rivers. It looks just like the garden description. There's the gold and the onyx. And there's the incense. All of the things that we saw in the garden are pictured again in Revelation. Not physically, not literally, but they're a picture of Eden, of paradise that we have in 
Christ. We have access again to these things. That is the hope and the blessing. We've got a few minutes. I'd like to take these. I hope you won't mind. I hope you'll, you'll pardon me for this, but I think it's going to be worth it. If you study the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, we won't be able to look at all the verses, but I want to get this picture before you let you go look at the verses later, and I, want, I hope you'll see this. You study the tabernacle, you begin to see the gospel laid out right before the Jews' eyes every single day in the tabernacle. And you see this from Genesis and Exodus. In Exodus 25, when God leads his people out of Egypt, he has them build this tabernacle. It's a sanctuary where he'll dwell among them. Genesis 3.8, he came to dwell among Adam and Eve. That's when he says, where are you? You've hidden yourselves from me. But he's coming for fellowship with them. He's, Moses is given these special instructions, and he says repeatedly, make everything according to the pattern. Do it exactly as I say, because God will show him example by example, exact detail by exact detail, how he wants it made. Because God sees the real thing. He wants Moses. In fact, Hebrews seems to indicate that he let Moses see into the heavens. He was shown the pattern on the mountain, not just shown these words about how to build it, but it's actually shown what it looks like. So it may have been taken up into the heavens like John was. So he gives them these exact dimensions for all the sacred furniture and for the sanctuary itself. So we've got this holy place, both in Exodus 26 and in 36. We've got the Holy of Holies, also in 26 and 36. There is this table for showbread. Part of Exodus 25 talks about that. There's this candelabra, this light uh, golden lampstand. You might recognize some of these ideas already from Revelation. Exodus 25 talks about that. There's an altar of burnt offering. There is the altar of incense. And so Hebrews lays all this out in chapters 9 and 10. Begins talking about all of these things in the present day. So the bronze laver. There's even directions given. North, south, east, and west that are specific. They're explicit. And so why all that? Well, in Exodus 25, we're told that this ark, this throne of God, is where God would meet with them and speak with them. Again, Genesis 3.8. We see that in Revelation. God is with them. He's extended his tabernacle over them. So they're, they're together with them. So we have this initial and this final example and this model in the tabernacle. And the ark was overlaid with good gold, just like in the land of Havilah. It's this pure gold. There it is, right there in the middle of the Holy of Holies. And we see that in Genesis 2 and also in Revelation, this pure gold in the city. All around the ark, from within the Holy of Holies, if you look up, you see cherubim that are on this inner curtain. There's a lot of details about what was supposed to be on these curtains, but if you go in, you're the high priest, and you look up at the curtains, there's cherubim all over these curtains, just the way they were supposed to be. Adam and Eve sin, and they're cast out of God's presence, and there's cherubim placed to guard the entrance. There's two angels on that tapestry right there, touching their wings, just like on top of the ark as well. These are cherubim that are blocking the entrance. Only the high priest can go in there. So they're guarding the way to the tree of life in Genesis. The way back to the tree of life then is restricted by the high priest. Only one who can go in there, and he can only go once a year, and he has to go through all the ritual to be able to do it. But he can get in there. And Hebrews 9 talks about that. And I want to start reading in Hebrews 9, because this is where uh, this is all going to start making sense to us. So think about at the time of Hebrews, these are Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back into the Jewish system. And, and the, the writer is saying, don't do that. We've got something much better. That was a temporary thing. We've got the reality of it. So he says, then indeed, even the first covenant, this is Hebrews 9.1, had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all to which pertained the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the, ta and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So, here's the plan. And you can see that. It's going back into Eden. One guy gets to go back, at least. But the Holy Spirit was teaching something. Look at the next few verses here in Hebrews 9. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who perform the services perfect in regard to the conscience, 
concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and uh, washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, the writer of Hebrews is saying that time of Reformation came. You missed it. <laughs> this is us right here. Why are you going back to something that was before that? So the, Hebrews, the Hebrew writer is saying the Holy Spirit was telling us something with this tabernacle, as they could only go in once a year. It was saying that the way hadn't been cleared yet. So Jesus dies. The veil is torn in two. Literally, the cherubim are separated. Top to bottom. The way to the tree of life is now open. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 says we have access. We've been granted access into the tree of life. Hebrews 10, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. This idea of coming in to stir one another up to love and good works as we come together in worship is based on this idea as we come into the throne room, as we come into Eden, as we're in the presence of God. Because Christ ripped that thing in half and took the cherubim out of the way. Jesus passed through the veil. He's the only way back to the throne. And so we can just go right to him, together with him, right up to the throne of God. Eden and the tabernacle are shadows of the true presence of God. It was the model shown to Moses on the mountain. We got the essence of that. It's part of what we're doing right here. As Grady prayed, what a blessing to be able to come before God in prayer. What a blessing. And that's what we've been given. And that picture, I think, is so clear. It's really the gospel being preached in the tabernacle. So when you look at Romans 6, 1 through 9, everything that was lost in sin can be regained in Christ. So what do you have? You have this sacrifice. John 1, 29, there's the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. But if we die with him on that altar of sacrifice, that's what Romans 6, 8 says, if we die with him, then we're part of it. If we're baptized into his death, there's the bronze labor. If we are in the walk in newness of life as we're going through the holy place, we have access into the Father and the holiest of holies. That's what God extended as he offered this new way, this new and living way through the veil in Christ. And so Jesus, as he's on the cross, he talks to this, this one, uh, uh, this one uh, criminal, I'm trying to think of the word, this one criminal who's saying, remember when you come into your, into your kingdom, he says, you'll be with me in paradise this day. He's offered hope to someone who just saw him. Just learned who he was that moment, but understood this is not like anybody else that says, take me with you. And he says, okay. <laughs> and that's what he's offered to all of us in a much deeper way than that criminal had. We, we've got a lifetime we can serve. What a blessing. Well, I hope this has been encouraging to you. Uh, we will pick up, Lord willing, during the worship service. We've got a few minutes uh, a break before we start the worship service. We'll pick up with chapter 4, and we'll see what this world looks like now. Where we'll recognize that's been marred by sin. Thank you so much.